And to that uh, piece of shit lieutenant that's always uh, on his podcast, uh, bashing us, fuck him. <laughs>
when I went to the two eight, it was like it was tremendous. And, and and we're talking ninety three now, right? So there were no cell phones, but just everything was an issue. It was very very hard to get. Uh, depending on who the mayor was and who was the commissioner, it was very, very hard to just go and go through a tour without having some type of issue. I stayed there. I did um, conditions. I worked midnights. Um, I had Wednesday and Thursday off, which was great for almost three years. I worked playing clothes. We had the Apollo theater. We had, we worked with, I worked with a, a great bunch of guys. I had a great time. Um, I got promoted in February of 98. And they sent me to Lower Manhattan in the seventh. I was there for 9/11. Um, I did. I was the snoo sergeant. I did narcot. I did um, gang. I did uh, conditions. Uh, the youth sergeant. I did compstat. I did basically everything. I had a great time in the seventh, and then I got promoted in February of 02, and they sent me back up to um, uh, Manhattan North Task Force. So I was. I stayed in Manhattan my whole career. In 05, I was the ICL in Manhattan North Task Force. John, you were the ICL, right? I, I retired as the ICL. I hated it. Time. Did you like it? I never wrote a CD as the ICL. So I'll tell you that I was only a C, I, you know, when, when I was told that I was going to be the ICL, because I didn't put in for it. I was told you're going to be the ICL. Uh, you know, I was in facilities at that time um, when COVID struck. I was a sergeant in building maintenance. They, were, they retained me. So they were like, that's you're going to be the ICL. And I was like, listen, if you, I, I have no problem. I believe in, in discipline and I believe that people should have to do the right thing. But, you know, I believe in discipline in different ways other than putting somebody on paper. Right. I, th right. I believe there's a million ways to skin the cat. I don't want to hurt a guy unless it's my last resort. And I said, if you push numbers on me, you could send me wherever you got to send me because I'm not going to do it. You know, so I didn't I didn't really i wasn't really an icl <laughs> just in title only i had a million other jobs that like i was really there they just right. kept me as the ico but i really wasn't <laughs> well, i went when they sent me to task force there was no ico to replace so i had no one to show me anything they were telling me stuff for the first time and i hated it because i lost my team when i was in the seventh precinct i worked with a bunch of great cops we had a great time we always got the job done but we had there was that camaraderie there you know um and then when you become the ICO, you're really basically only working for the captain. And I had a great captain, but I just hated the paperwork. I hated being inside. So about two years into it, uh, I ran into my old training sergeant. And he said, why don't you put in for Central Park? We're, we're looking for an SOL. So I, I ran right away, did what I had to do. And within about two weeks, I went to Central Park. Uh, that's where I got hurt in 05. And then they sent me to the property clerk for three years. I got passed over. I, I became lieutenant in February of 02 and passed the captain's test about three months later in June. And I would have been promoted around 06, but I was injured. I had several surgeries. There's no way that they were going to promote me. So I took the three quarters and, and I got out. Um, and, you know, civilian life has been, you guys are, are basically newly retired, but, um, it's hard to get used to. I'm, I'm sure you guys are, are finding that out now. So, so Paul, could you, could you take us back to when you did retire? Like basically you, could you take us back to the outlook you had on the police department on New York city fraud, like throughout your career. And, and then again, when you retired, you know, excluding now, not right now, like your feelings okay. now, like what was your, what was your outlook on New York city and the NYPD at that point in your career? 
Well, back then we had um, um, Giuliani was mayor. Dinkins was in when I first got out. And then we had Giuliani and I ended with Bloomberg. The police department, for the most part, if you're 90% of your success and, and your outlook and how you feel going to work every day has to do with your immediate supervisor. If you're a cop and you got a good sergeant or if you're a lieutenant and you got a good CO, you're, you're basically, you have less stress, right? Because that's the person you have to answer to. That's the person you expect to go to bat for you. And the job, you know, we were always worried, like, oh, I don't want to get jammed up. And we were worried about, but there were, but there were no iPhones. There were none of these dicks running around throwing the phone in your face, which wouldn't exist in any other profession. So we did our job. We, we, we always got the job done. I, I always tried to do what was asked of me. I love going to bat for my cops and the guys that I worked for. And look, I became a cop to help people, but I became a boss to help cops. And that was the most rewarding part. You know, people inside every cop, I believe, is a leader. I wanted to be the guy that showed up on your doorstep when you called 911. I wanted to be the guy that provided assistance. Because even if you look at the best collars that you've ever had, you know, take a gun collar. It's a great feeling. But compare that with, like, reuniting a lost child with their parents. That feeling of, of rewarding, you know, the rewarding feeling that you had from that um, is satisfied everything. And, and that's what made you. Plus, I work with great guys. Eric, I heard you say this many times. You never wanted to take off work because you felt like you would miss something, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're not kidding. <laughs> yeah. But for the most part, it was, it was, you know, it had a, problems like any other job. But for the most part, you knew that if your boss liked you, they can go into the CEO's office and go to bat for you. And the job wasn't nearly as, as bad as we had riots. We had, you know, we had issues, um, problems with the community. But the funny thing is the people would attend the community council, the community board meetings, and they would scream that there wasn't enough cops. Where were you? You know, why weren't you there? Why don't we see more police? And, when like most most of the time in the two eight, I did drugs, right? I, I, even even though I was in conditions and I wasn't in snoo, I was the snoo sergeant in the seventh precinct. I basically focused on narcotics, and a lot of the times you feel like I'm not really helping anyone, right? You're not catching the bad guy. You're locking up a dealer, and the delegate told me, and this is in, in the first video I ever made when I made in uniform. The delegate told me one time. He said, um, "Paul, it's the people that." look outside and won't go to the bodega until they see you standing there. Those are the people, because you're working midnights, you don't see the good people. You see all the mutts that are out three or four o'clock in the morning in the middle of January dealing, right? So you're not getting the good slice of, of the people that, that, that live in the two way. You're getting the mutts and the animals that want to, you know, butcher people and, 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 uh, you know, the degenerates is what you're getting. So, I thought that he was just trying to be nice, right? So then a little while later, I was working a day tour and, and I thought he was trying to boost my morale. And I hold this the door open for this little old lady coming down the steps. And she was slow, you know, she was probably in her 80s. And she came down, as she passed me, she looked up and I thought she was going to say thank you for holding the door. And she looked at me and she said, it's good to see you. It's good to see the police here. And then, and it turned out the delegate was right. 
right? That there are people, because I was trying to stay in that little airlock, that vestibule to keep warm in the middle of winter, there were people that felt safe because they knew in that housing project or wherever it was in that apartment building, there was a cop there. So that was a very rewarding feeling, always trying to, you know, uh, problem solve, right? You got a dealer over here. You got shootings at, the, at this. And by the way, and let me know if I'm, if I'm starting to ramble because no, I, I want to warn you about that. Uh, you're doing great. I, I'm very interested. You, you, you talked about how it was in the 90s, right, compared to today. And I don't want to jump too forward to where we are today. But this bullshit about racism, about what these people are claiming racism this is what I, I know you guys know this, but I want to explain it to the civilians who might not know. If I were to make you commanding officer of, let's say, the 124 precinct, we'll make up a number. And we said, okay, congratulations. Here's the keys. You're now the CO. The first thing you're going to want to do is try to establish patterns. If you have shootings on the north end of the precinct in Sector Adam on the late tour, let's say from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m., that's where you're going to put the cops, Right. When we went after Hitler, not to say that these people are, are, are like going, you know, what they faced in World War II, but we didn't go to, you know, we didn't invade the beaches of Peru, right? We went, we went to where he was. If there's a fire, you don't tell FD, put a third of the water on the attic, put a third in the middle, and then hit the basement with the rest because it feels good. You put the fire where the water is. If you're mining gold, you do your research and you figure out where you're most likely to be the most productive. That's the way it is. And if you were to overlay the amount of crime, whether it's a borough or a precinct or even a sector, that's where the cops have to go. If the people in that area, whether they're workers or they live there, happen to be a, a certain mix of the population, it's not racism. It is the law of statistics. If, if you're going after crime in a particular area, those people that live in that area are unfortunately going to get stopped. And for the most part, they're glad that you're doing it. Nobody really complains. The good people really don't complain with proactive policing. It's the people that, you know, now they can't carry because they know they might get stopped. And there was always that fear. And I, I know I rambled on again and I'm probably going to do it again. But uh, <laughs> I apologize in, in, in advance. Donna, this is this is your moment to tell your story because we're very interested in, and for the most part, you tell your story through videos. Now we have an opportunity to hear you actually speak about it. But so, if I could sp stop you for a moment, I just want to sum up some of the stuff that you've told us, so I can explain to the audience. So most of our viewers are cops, but we do have viewers that are civilians. We have wives and husbands of cops that watch this, so. I'd like to just sum up a little bit about your career of what you told us. So if I'm if, stop me, if I say anything wrong. So Paul retired Lieutenant started his career in the one Oh four precinct, which is in the confines no. of Queen. In right? the two eight. I lived in the one. Right. Okay, oh, so you lived in the one Oh four. So you started the two eight now. And the two eight is, is, is a, a great precinct to start out. I think it has a lot of history. We actually interviewed uh, former detective, Randy Jurgensen, who actually had, right. He had a prolific yep. case where he investigated the, the homicide of Philip Cardillo in the mosque yeah. in the two, yep, in the two A precinct. So definitely interesting that you start out in the two A precinct. I mean, the extremely amount of history. Then from the two A, that's where you went to the seventh precinct. Am I right? Correct. 
Right. So the seventh precinct, that's another precinct which I think has a lot of history to it. I was a crime sergeant in PSA four, which is encompasses yep. the seventh precinct, other precincts, well, a majority of housing, but there is a huge narcotics problem in the Lower East Side, particularly the seventh precinct. So I, I totally understand the dynamics of you working there. So I, I want to thank you for that. So if anybody understands he worked at the seventh precinct, probably I think it's the second smallest precinct. In the entire city, am I right? The seventh precinct? I don't know what the second smallest is. I know the two eight is at the time is the smallest. Right, um, that, which is interesting. You worked in in these small commands, but they're very dynamic. The two eight's are very dynamic. The seventh precinct, uh, and also you also explain, which I think is great, that the public says you said you worked at SNU. So for anyone that's not a cop, that stands for S N E U. That's Street Narcotics Enforcement Unit, where you worked as a sergeant. You had a team of cops. You did observation, and you would look for drug transactions, you did hand-to-hands, things like that, getting narcotics off the street, which is a huge fact. And you said you didn't know if you were making a difference. You're making a huge difference because every time you get a buyer off the street, you're helping someone get off substances. Every time you get a dealer, you're getting someone off the street that is causing these people out there to be hooked on substances, which also contributes to robberies, and homicides, and other major crimes that we have. So what I'd like to ask you is this. So you've told all these stories through videos. So now that you have an opportunity that you got on the job in the 90s where there wasn't much video as there is now and into the early 2000s, now we see videos every day. So how does it make you feel when you see these these cops getting ridiculed and, and pretty much abused and, and to the point that we have to actually, the NYPD has to put out bolos, which means be on the lookout to arrest someone based on a video that we watch. How do you feel when you see these videos now that, we didn't have back then. Is it something that you thought we had and it just wasn't on video? Or you think this is a new phenomenon? John and I just did a podcast about it of where so, cops are getting disrespected. So what do you think about that? Right. I, I watched the podcast you guys just did with the water, right? Yes. Uh, where they doused the cops. I made a video on that. The Republicans in New York State wanted to make that a felony. The Democrats, including the House Speaker, I forgot his name, denied it. And, and and, and the Republicans didn't have a majority, so they denied it. Now, Eric, you brought up a great point during that video. We think it was water. It could have been urine. It could have been something else. And the other cops that have the guy bent over the RMP and they get hit with a bucket, that's assault. What I see today is beyond disgusting. And I, I don't think it was, it was this brazen before. The, the kids that walk around and taunt the police while they videotape you, Remind me of the spoiled children at the zoo that bang <laughs> on the glass to tease the tiger or the lion or the polar bear, and they know that they're not going to get, you know, uh, attacked. This doesn't exist in any other profession. If you go to get your taxes done and you walk in and you record the CPA, and he could be a friend of yours, he could be a great guy, and he says, what's with the phone? You say, no, I just want to report everything you do. Or you bring it to your doctor's appointment. Or you bring it to wherever. You have a plumber come in and fix a leak, and you answer the door with a cell phone in your hand. They're going to think you're insane. Nobody wants to work under that microscope. So not only is everything being recorded and it's unfair, but then it's judged by hundreds of people that aren't even in law enforcement. Now, a lot of the stuff at law enforcement, and tell me if I'm wrong, but from what I remember is it's whether or not you were justified in taking certain action. It's not just 
what a normal person had reason to believe, but it's what a police officer, given his experience and training, uh, uh, what he would have done in that situation. So why, first of all, why do we have a civilian complaint review board? Why is it made of civilians? When Giuliani changed it from civil, from PD to civilians, there was a big uproar because you can't, you're not in, it's like me judging a, a surgeon. I don't know. I don't know, you know, anything about medicine. So if you're not in law enforcement, if you're not a cop, there's no way you should be judging a cop's behavior. It, it's ridiculous. They just had a guy on, I forgot his name, that Biden nominated to be the FA, FAA, uh, the head of the FAA. And you see him in multiple clips saying, I'm not a pilot. I have no idea. <laughs> you shouldn't be there. Just like we need, look, we have, and I think there's even more units that you guys talked about. We had, when I was there, IAB, or IAD, they called it, right? Um, inspections, quality assurance, data integrity, ICOs in every precinct, assistant ICOs, and now they got more units. When you hate cops, you hire more of them to police them. And that's what they're doing. They hate police, so we're going to take more from this bunch, and we're going to put them in positions to put these cops under a microscope. It's unfair. Cops are hesitant to do their job. What you saw with the water was disgusting. I, I know that they were rookies. First of all, rookies, two rookies shouldn't be together. That, that's the first thing. But every single thing you do, Terry Monahan was a big tough guy saying, uh, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. But honestly, Chief, would you have had their back if the cop turned around and, you know, and whacked this guy? You probably wouldn't have. They probably wouldn't have even shown the water. It would have just shown the cop you know, hitting, hitting this kid, but that it made me sick. And that's why I made a video of it because you, you know, when you're retired, when you're on the job, you want to speak for the cops when you're a boss, when you're a civilian and you can't do that. It, it, it bothers me. It bothers me that I'm seeing my friends, my brothers, my sisters that I used to work with people that are still on the job, just being ambushed and vilified in the media. And, and the, the turning point for me was George Floyd. And, and the kneeling, I mean, that had to. You got you guys were, were on the job back then, right? We were on the job, absolutely. How, how sick? How sick did that make you? It was it was a complete dark time in the NYPD. I mean, I really at that point under Dermot Shea and under Terry Monahan's management, because I will not call it leadership because it was anything but that. I was like, what the hell am I even doing? What what happened to this job? What happened to New York City? What am I even doing with my career? Why am I, why am I going to go out there, risk my life when I have these, these men who claim to be like me and claim to have believed in all the things I know that are true? And, and, the back, and in my heart, I believe that they know that those things are correct, but they're just playing politics to get ahead. And, and, and to keep their big pay and to get their second lineup jobs with another $200,000 a year. And honestly, it broke my heart. It really did. Yep. That, that, that was the end of my career. I just didn't know it. Yep. COVID really finished me off. I didn't want to believe my career was over at that point. But like looking back at that time frame, that was when I mentally made the decision that Check maybe out, this right. isn't a viable career anymore. <laughs> it's the truth. Sorry. Salute. It's the truth. That's yeah. right. Hey, 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 Paul, you got some Jewish in you? That's a, that's a Jewish superstition. 
Uh, that's a, the Italians say that too. You know, um, you know, you know what's yeah. crazy to me is John and I talk about this all the time. He said, "Wow, you know, I, I stayed in the game and I, I want to go out there, still do police work, still do the intrusive police work." I hate even calling it proactive. I love calling it intrusive police work because that's what it exactly it is. This idea of proactive it gives the, the public this this ideology that we're being aggressive, which is I, I do believe aggressive control is necessary. But w with that being said, I, I mean it just it, it's it's unappreciated. It got to the point where I, I was in disbelief. You know, I, I I was out there. I wanted to be out there with the men and women. If they're out there, I felt I should be out there too because I mentor them and train them. But I was in disbelief because. I find myself to be an intelligent person, but I, I didn't believe there's no way that I would become the enemy or I would become the opposition when I'm out there in good faith wanting to get illegal firearms off the street. I mean, I look at some of these videos now and I see these gang members shooting each other and I said, wow, those are the complaints I'm getting from. I'm getting complaints from people that would shoot each other dead in the middle of the street for no reason. And, 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 I, and I said, there's no way that they're going to want me off the street. There's no way they're going to try to terminate me. They want people like me. But unfortunately, I found out the hard way. They didn't want people like myself no. and, and the men and women doing intrusive police work and, and 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 to pay dividends. I mean, I sat there with the paperwork saying, "How did I get here?" You know, and and, and I watch your videos and I watch them and I'm like, "Oh my god, I how did I make it through this hypocrisy?" I, I don't even know. I I really don't. Dude, I would say that that you know your your handle is I was my son. I had a shirt on the other day. It said nobody appreciates the warrior class until the enemy is at the gate, right? Now, your handle is the most complained cop. And <laughs> I would argue that it's not the most complained cop. It's the most active. And I got to tell you, my son asked me what it meant. And after I, I explained it to him, God forbid someone in my family is attacked. I don't give a fuck about diversity. I don't care who you knew that got in. I want Eric Dim and John McCary to be in that fucking patrol car to go get this guy. That's and and when I was on the job, they still felt that way. Nobody wanted you to be heavy-handed. I have I don't think I have any complaints. Um, nobody wanted you to do any nobody wanted you to break the law, but they didn't want to prevent you from doing intrusive police work. We, we were asked all the time, how many 250s do you have? We need more 250s. We need you to get out and stop people. And there weren't, there weren't a lot of people carrying because they knew that there, there's a high probability they might get stopped. So, and I think a lot of the work that I did, honestly, was because, like we talked about, the direct line, the, 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 your immediate supervisor. When I had a great sergeant, I wanted to do, I wanted to do well for him. When I had the same thing with my lieutenants and when I had a great CO, I, I was trying to make him look good if he treated us well. And, and I think a lot of it stems from that. And you start to take risks that maybe you shouldn't, you know, but you're already retired, Eric, and you're still going down for, for the uh, uh, depositions. And I, I, oh, just, yeah. I find that. Seven hours. How many? Seven hours. We're gonna get we're gonna get the transcript. I'm gonna wear a wig. I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play the person asking him the questions, and he's gonna and we're gonna remake the whole thing once the case is over. <laughs> it's insane, but you can see why they put up these obstacles, and they're basically saying we don't want you to do anything. But but back then it was more like uh, um, they weren't so. 
you know, they weren't advertising to defund the police. You got these idiots in Congress. You got the vice president posting bail for a rapist, telling people, you know, the Minnesota Freedom Fund. I have it in my video. The guy raped an eight-year-old girl. She she got him bailed out. This is insane. It's insane. And 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 you know, you think, well, the pendulum swung so far to, to, to one way when Trump came in. It made me realize that it's not just who is in the White House, but there are so many issues that are, are formulated around local level policing, right? Trump can't call the National Guard. The state's got to do it. Trump can't, he couldn't impose a curfew when they surrounded the White House and he had to go into a bunker. Mayor Bowser from Washington, she let them do it. They, they you know, they bum rushed the courthouse the court offices and the, and the uh, marshals put up steel gates. They came with grinders, ripped the gates open. They assaulted everyone. Nobody's prosecuted. That didn't happen when I, when I was on the job. We had, I don't know if you guys remember this or you heard about it. We had this case called um, 41 shots. Amadou Diallo was a guy. Uh, it's a, it's very, for those who don't know, it was a very sad situation. Street crime who wore plain clothes, uh, stopped this guy. They thought he was wanted, right? I'm, I'm talking to the to the civilians, and I know you guys know about this. And he matched someone, you know, he looked like on a wanted poster. They go to stop him, he runs, he takes off. He gets cornered into a building, and he turns, and he takes out what the cop thought was a gun, but he took out his wallet to show his ID. Now, if you're a cop, they were all exonerated. They were prosecuted, they were exonerated. They let, they let go 41 shots. There's a million justifications for it. Contagious shooting. You know, there was a small hallway. So when the rounds went in, they bounced back out and they thought they were getting shot at. When those people were protesting, we locked up hundreds of people, but they were protesting peacefully and all of the charges were dropped. My old CEO who, who ended up becoming a chief, he was telling me that when they shut down the Brooklyn Bridge, Chief Esposito had multiple buses, one right after the other. They locked up 741 people. Today, you punch a cop in the face, you shoot, you shoot people, you're out. And, and these, these, these insane liberals who claim to care about black and brown lives actually hate them, I would argue, because when these thugs get out of jail, they're, us they're usually not going to Soho and attacking white people. They're going back to where they live and they prey on innocence. You look at the subways. You know what? We have these big concrete buildings with these steel bars and then we call them jails. That's where these, where some of these people are animals. They belong in there. And they, they want to take qualified immunity away from police. Uh, Eric, you, you were telling me that you got sued, right? And, and Many uh, times. And, and sometimes the union backed you and sometimes, you know, qualified immunity wasn't really what it was supposed to be. Why don't we take it away from these judges and these politicians that allow these animals back out onto the street? If we could sue the judge that releases so-and-so who goes, ends up and rapes someone, maybe they'll be less likely to, you know, to, to release the next person that does that. But for some reason, cops 
they're easy pickings, right? There's no union. There's no union. When we used to stand on the footpost and freeze my balls off, right? We used to sit there, our toes were like blocks of ice, and you'd work 20 hours in a row. Other cops would tell me, if this was the Teamsters, they wouldn't be able to do this. They wouldn't be able to cancel your days off for 20 days in a row for no pay. When I came on, the starting pay was 28000 a year, and top pay was forty five. So for some reason, the police are always – uh, uh, easy pickings for everyone. Politicians, obviously the media, and 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 it's disgraceful. And they make they make the job much harder than it needs to be. Paul, from where you are now, and I, I know, like I know you've been out a while. I know you're paying attention. I know you're not into the intricacies of the department per se, but I know you see everything that's going on. If if we made you the mayor today, we we voted you in New York City mayor. What do you think the first things you would do? is to, as it relates to crime and quality of life in New York City? First of all, you have to bring back broken windows. Um, there's, you know, it, it's a slow process. If you jump, if you're collaring someone for jumping a turnstile, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was going to murder someone the next day. But as you continue to do this, you might get someone who pops for a warrant. You might get a gun. You go after the squeegee guys. You go. You can't defecate on the sidewalk. You can't. I remember I came into work one day on one two six and Fifth Avenue. I see a girl squatting down, taking a dump on the sidewalk. It starts small, and before you know it, drugs decimate cities. They decimate neighborhoods. They ruin lives. They destroy families. You have to go tough on the drug dealers. You're getting guys with fentanyl thousands and thousands of pills and they're let out. We used to charge, we used to say around 10 vials was in, of crack was intent to sell. It was 2016. It was a B felony, but less than that, we would say, okay, personal consumption. The ADA is probably not going to write it up, but if you have a large amount of drugs, we say there's no way you could be smoking all this. You're obviously dealing. And even though we didn't get you in the hand to hand, the intent in the law, the intent as a presumption is you had intent to sell. Now you're getting guys with 30,000 fentanyl pills. One pill is going to kill him. So you know it's not personal consumption. They're, they're selling this poison. Nothing happens. You have to get rid of this insane, insane bail reform, which is, which I know it's not everything, but the idea that you can go, did you see the guy on the subway take a bag of shit and smear it all over the girl's face? Yeah. They put the guy up in a hotel. No bail, released him, got, got a public defender that you're paying for, and put him up in a hotel. He was on Facebook showing how nice his, his uh, you know, he's on the sixth floor of some hotel. So you got to, you, you have to bring broken windows back, start focusing on the small crimes. But before you even get to that, there's so much that's going on now that's easy that they're just not they're just not prosecuting these these people for, you know for committing these these terrible crimes and i keep hearing that you know we're a nation of uh, we have the most the most incarcerated people than than any anywhere else we have the most people in prison than anywhere else you know what we have more of than prisoners victims because if you get a guy that's 30 years old 
doing 15 years for killing someone and he started his criminal career at the age of 13 or 14, he could have ruined 100 people's lives. You don't know. There's no telling how many people he killed and, and got away with it. There's no telling how many people he raped, assaulted, robbed. So we need to go back. There are victims. Just because you spent your life in and out of prison because your dad wasn't around does not make you a victim. There are legitimate victims. And I think we need to go back to focusing on, on those poor people who are assaulted, who are robbed, who are attacked. It, it's a slap in the face. When people lose faith in the police department, they lose. They, it, you know, I remember in the police academy, and I know I'm rambling, sorry. I remember in the police academy, uh, they taught us that when someone is, let's say, burglarized, and you go to their house, they've just been violated. Someone went into their house, they went through all their drawers, they have no power. So you want to try to establish, put them, give them some power back, even with minor things like, do you mind if I take my hat off? Do you mind if I sit down? God forbid the victim was raped, you'll ask, would you like to speak to a female officer? You want to try and, and let them know that they're back in sort of charge, right? It's their house and you let them lead the conversation. How do you think these victims feel when they're assaulted, they're stabbed, they're attacked, they're shot, and they and they see them out the next day. We just had the, the, the girl from Bragg's office didn't prosecute a murderer who shot another kid because two reasons. Number one, she said they had an ongoing beef. And number two, the victim who died only had one member in the United States. So that means his life didn't matter. And by the way, they weren't white. Most of these victims that live in these bad areas that are, are you know, fall victim to these, to these animals, they're not white. It's not really happening in the, in, in the areas where, you know, it's, it's ha the, the thugs go back mm -hmm. to where they live and prey upon innocent people. And, and, and it's really sad. But getting back to your question, I would start with the major crimes, try to get, try to get rid of this nonsense this bail reform, I would tell, meet with all my leaders, with the police commissioner, with, with all the chiefs and say, this shit stops now. We're going to enforce the law. First of all, stop kneeling. We have to remain impartial. Okay. Criminal lady justice is supposed to be blindfolded for a reason. I don't care what race you are. I don't care if you're an Italian kid or, or a Jewish kid or a black or an, it doesn't matter to me. If you take a knife and plunge it into someone's chest, we're going to prosecute you. We're going to take you to jail and hopefully you don't get bail. Mm -hmm. So start with the major crimes. Then you could fill in once you get a hold on, on some of this. Bring back broken windows. Stop ignoring all the shit with these safe injection sites. You guys know I, I, I did a short on this. The Democrats want safe injection sites so that junkies can go and shoot up heroin under the supervision of a nurse or a doctor that is beyond insane it's poison it's poison we have we have women selling their children to drug dealers just to get high and you want more people hooked on it because the first time you try it a dealer knows you try it once i own you you will do anything to get high again why would you want people to have access to more drugs and, and to not be prosecuted. Now, I don't think that you should go to jail if you're an addict. 
if, if, you know, if you're, if you're addicted to this, we need to go after the dealer, but we do have to offer some type of treatment programs for them, but basically just enforce the law. That's, that's what I would say. Enforce the law. Start with the big ones. Is it true that the PBA really gave, like you said, $50,000 to Hulkle? I can't wrap my mind around that. John, I'm going to let you answer this one because you're the piece of shit that said this. So. <laughs> so, so I didn't find it. Somebody sent it to me. Somebody sent me, hey, take a look at this. So I don't believe everything I get because I get a ton of stuff. So I looked where they looked and I researched it myself and I'm like, holy shit. You know, it's followthemoney.org. I was like, I can't fucking believe this. I can't believe they donated to Holcher. Now, I don't care Republican, Democrat. That has nothing to do with it because I understand we're in New York and there are Democrats. There's Democrats that I like, like Bob Holden. You know, I don't love them. I don't love any politician. I don't love any of the people on the right. I bash them, too. I think I'm blocked more by the GOP than I am by the Democrats, actually, on Twitter. But so when I saw it, I was like, I can't believe this. And it has everything to do with. <coughs> oh, excuse Truth. me. I'm sorry. My allergies are kicking in. I don't what, know. what do you got? A, what do you got? A cat on your lap? <laughs> Dude, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Today. I just started sneezing. I really did. I'm usually the one with the bird flu. <laughs> yeah, it's usually Eric's coughing in the background. <laughs> um, but. Yes, I, I couldn't believe it. It had everything to do with it. She's a huge supporter of bail reform, completely anti-police, completely pandering during the George Floyd incident. I mean, completely went COVID Nazi during the whole time. She wanted to stick our kids. She wanted to keep our kids masked forever. You know, I mean, and, and the sick thing with that donation to me was you didn't even endorse her. So there were real nefarious reasons that you gave her the money backdoor deals that were made right. because you didn't even have the, 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 the spine to sit there and say, cause you know, and, and, in the, and in the, the follow up meeting, because a lot of people send me their meetings, they're constantly talking about myself and Eric. That's just my favorite one out of all of them. They said right after that meeting, when I put that out, we don't care what anybody says. Don't listen to what anybody says. We're going to donate to what's better for our membership. But they didn't go out and, and endorse her, right? They no, didn't they didn't. Endorse they... Her and he said it's going to be better for their membership. Paul, do you think that endorsing Kathy – I'm sorry, they didn't endorse Kathy Holchill. Right. you think sneaking money to Kathy Holchill helped the police department? No. The obvious answer is no. And uh, I was hoping that Zeldin would win. Um you know, we heard that Tudor Dixon might win in Michigan and get rid of the other imbecile. We, I mean, Lifefoot's gone now, but she's replaced in Chicago by someone worse. Adams replaced. I can't even get started on the Blasio. I'll never, you'll never get a word in. Um, so I was hoping Zeldin would win, and and obviously she's not good for police. She's an imbecile. Uh, I I did a, a short on her where her solution now is. Um, to let you compost your dead family members. So many people in New York City are dying that she has a, a deal with some company where you can now compost your loved ones. You put them in, <laughs> in a box, you put these organic leaves and, and other stuff on it, you close it, and then you're, 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 you know, whoever it is to you, your family member, they turn them into soil. And, and that's a solution for instead of just 
Maybe we should have less victims and less people dying. Um, but what they did with COVID, bro, and, and just let me ask you a question. When did we need two weeks to flatten the curve, become three years of unemployment if you don't take the shot? And by the way, this so-called vaccine doesn't even stop the spread. You were told that you needed to take it because it was your patriotic duty. If you didn't take it, you didn't love your neighbor. You were not setting a good example. And then when one of these cases came out, first they denied it. They said, no, that person wasn't vaccinated. No, 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 no. Oh, that's just internet gossip. And then when a couple came through and they, you know, they, they couldn't deny it, they called it a breakthrough case. Like, let's just give it a new name. It's a breakthrough case. Sometimes it happens. Now, we all know getting the, the vaccine, the so-called vaccine, has no bearing on whether or not you get COVID. So number one, stop calling it a vaccine. John, I can't believe the pair of balls you had to leave 18 years on. I don't think the public understands the courage that took. I got to tell you, I don't think I would have, I don't know how you pull your pants on, bro, because you're, I'm just saying it's just, it's, it's, I'm sure you love the job. I know, you know, we're all talking about how much, you know, all the things that are on it that sucked. I don't know if I would have been that brave. I, I, I may have just said, you know what? I got two years left. Just fucking, but you, how many people rolled up their sleeves and said, you know what? I got to do it. And from, I have kids or I have an elderly father at home and I'm doing the right thing. And then it went from people that were telling you, John, you, you, you're the man for not getting it. John, you, you know, it turned from that to, yeah, bro. Yeah. I got your back to after they got it, John, why don't you just fucking get it? Just get it. Just get it. And Eric, I know you said you had so much shit in the military that, that, I mean, what, how, what, and, and I don't, I don't knock people who want to get it the way and, and I, I have a doctor that I'm very, very good friends with. And he said, I should get it. And the way it was explained to me was there's a million things you could do to try to keep yourself safe. The vaccine is just another step that can help you. And fine. If you want to get it, the, you know, that's up to you. But you're going to fire the doctors, the nurses, the cops, the firemen who supposedly were heroes during this pandemic. You're going to take away their livelihood. I cannot imagine, you know, being in civil service, we're pretty lucky. We don't know what it's like to be prior to this. We don't know what it's like to be unemployed. I've never had to collect unemployment. I became a cop when I was 21. And now I'm on, on a pension. So. But that fear that you must have had, I, I, I can't imagine. And now look, look what's coming out, right? You know, the, the suddenly it's, it's, um, it's no longer a secret that it didn't work. And what they've done for the next whatever issue it, it's going to be, it could be 20 years from now, they've destroyed our trust in, in any of, of the medical professionals, in the CDC, in the NIH, it, because we all think you're full of shit now and people are still losing their job for not taking it. So I, I don't know. I don't know how I got on COVID, but, Oh, cause you mentioned Hochul. So sorry. <laughs> well, uh, listen, I think your assessment is great. I think it's genuine. And that's, that, that's what I like so much about you is, I mean, you had this opportunity, you were, you were on the job, you retired in the early two thousands and, and you're seeing, 
you're seeing how policing is going at this moment, and you've been pretty adamant and expressive that, I mean, you're shocked at what you're seeing. And that's pretty much what I've been taking from you. Is, and I'm sure at this point, you're probably wondering how would it be for you to police in this environment. So I'm curious because John and I always talk about the lack of leadership on the job right now. John won't even call it leadership. He calls it management. I think it's a great terminology because we're not seeing any leadership. We're not seeing anyone stand the moral principle. Did we just lose Eric? Yeah, you there? He just he just backed out. Yeah, he's frozen. But, uh, he'll he'll jump back. But I think that's what he's getting at. Yeah, oh. there's no leadership anymore, bro. There's no leadership. There you go. Yeah. We lost you, Eric. Oh, you lost me. Oh, yeah. sorry. So when 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 you run the job compared to now, and, and this is the problem that, that John and I have been expressing about. There's no vision anymore. There's no leadership. The cops don't even know what their job is. Did you feel when you were on the job that there was a vision? Did you know what your job is compared to now? Do you think that the leaders were better, or do you think it's because because who was mayor at the time? What is your take on the leadership structure then compared to now? So Giuliani was quoted as saying, I, "This is it's ironic when you compare it to today." He said, "I want cops, not social workers," and look at how much that changed today, where they're actually saying the opposite. You knew with Bratton and with Kelly before Bratton went woke, you knew that like I got in trouble a couple of times, uh, but everyone knew that my heart was in the right place. I was always trying to get drugs off the street, get guns off the street. And you knew that your immediate supervisor understood that. And then if, if something happened down the line, as long as your heart was in the right place, you knew that they backed you. We had good leaders. I didn't like Comstat. I, I I didn't want to go to it as a captain. It was no it was no love loss, you know, that, that I didn't get promoted um, to captain because I ended up, you know, retiring early. Um, but we had good leadership. We had good chiefs. We had there was it was always let's make the city safer, and the leadership was there. Today, look, if you wanted to change. 40,000 NYPD cops and make them all obsessed with diversity and make them all go woke. You don't need to do that to 40,000 cops. You just install a corrupt mayor like fucking de Blasio. And I, I, I just, I cannot stand the man and take it from there because he will hire a commissioner that does what he wants. And then the, I got, I spoke to a couple of retired chiefs. They're talking about people that are getting a double bump. Normally you go from captain to deputy inspector, inspector. They're going from captain to inspector or DI to a one star. And, and it has nothing to do with, with, you know, um, quality, right? It, it's, it's got to do with who you are and what you look like. And, and that's really unfortunate because we've moved totally away from fighting crime, which is what we're supposed to do. So, so the leadership back then was much better than, than, it is, uh, than it is today. And for me, the turning point was de Blasio. He hated cops. He absolutely despised cops. I remember uh, Lieutenant, um, I think his name was Garcia. He got hit in the head with a brick during the riots, uh, yep. during the George Floyd riots. And a cop came out with his gun drawn to, you know, and the lieutenant was saying they were throwing a vacuum cleaner at us. They threw a moped 
frying pans, chairs, and the guy comes over with a brick and slams him on his helmet. And you hear you hear the, the click, right? What is de Blasio's response? He wants the cop that 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 held these, this crowd at gunpoint fired. That's all you need to know. And when you have the head of the snake doing this, you don't need to change everyone else. You just put, you know, you just have a guy like de Blasio run it. And he's destroyed the city. I mean, he's absolutely, he's destroyed my city, decimated my neighborhood. There are junkies all over the place. Nobody enforces the law anymore. And these this camera stuff, what you guys were talking about with, you know, the, the body cams, like you guys, I watched the body cam podcast. Like you were saying, you alter your behavior to move a certain way to make sure it's on film. Now me liking film work and, and trying to make these videos and stuff, I always feel, and, and this doesn't apply to police work, but I always say, if it's not on film, it didn't happen. And that happens. I, I do that in my personal life. Like I tell my wife, She'll say, oh, the kids had a great time at the park. You should have saw, you know, Rob climbing the rope. And I would say, did you get it on video? Did you, can, you, can you send me a picture? And if she, you know, she said, no, I can't because, you know, I had Taylor, my, my youngest one. And I say, if it's not a video, it didn't happen. Because when you, when you, when you take a snapshot or a video, it, it's almost like freezing time, right? Where you can go back and you can inspect all the stuff. But now you know that... If something that would normally exonerate you isn't on that camera, nobody's going to back you because no matter what you say, they're going to say, well, we didn't see that. We didn't see that. And as you guys pointed out, the head swivels, right? The body cam, you got to get everything. You know, It's like wearing a wire, speaking to the mic, right? You got to get everybody on that film. And what I say about if it's on a film, it didn't happen. Shouldn't apply to police work. Unfortunately, that's what, that's what they've made of it. They made they made this mockery. No. And I don't know who else could work under those circumstances. Why don't, how about this? You want to put cameras on police. Okay. Let's put cameras on, let's put cameras on the city council. Oh, but they have to be public servants. Police are in a unique position. Okay. Let's put them on, let's put them on members of Congress. Wear a camera for eight hours, AOC and Bernie Sanders and all these other lunatics wear a camera for eight hours. And then a thousand people are going to sit back and listen to every single word you say, and we're going to scrutinize it and then call you in and demand answers. And then we have the power to destroy your career. When I was on the job, CCRB did not have the power. Eric, what they did to you, they, they weren't that powerful. They would make a recommendation they were friendly when we went down there, and I wasn't there a lot. Most of the times I was there as a witness. But they, they I mean, they gave up, you know, the, the, the so-called union gave up such power, um, and they gave it to civilians who know nothing about police. Are there any cops in CCRB at all? Are there, like... The, the you know, I, IB has a liaison unit. I was the commanding officer of it for about a year um, of that unit. But they have zero say. They're basically CCRB's bitch. That's basically what what you are. And, you know, any, you know, they, all you're there to do is ensure that they get what they're allowed to get legally. 
and they whatever gets redacted, whatever should be. But I don't know what that is even anymore because I just watched the city council hearing where they're going to give them unfiltered. They're looking at giving CCRB unfiltered access at body camera video, even if they don't have a case about it. So they'll be able to self-generate cases. So like what what that unit specifically does in IAB is make sure, okay, you're allowed to investigate a complaint if you have one. So what's your complaint? Okay, all right, you have a complaint number. Here's your complainant. This is what happened. Okay, we could get you their memo books or whatever need be, right? Their body camera video. And it's basically an information share program. That's all it is. The real CC, the real share with, with CCRB is, is the, the chief of internal affairs or the deputy commissioner. I think they went back to a chief again after Resnick and, uh, and the police commissioner. And I have, honestly, I've yet to see them deny CCRB anything. She I, did, I, yeah, I'm sorry. You were saying uh, on one of your podcasts, did she agree with most of their findings? Like 86% or something of what CCRB recommended she agreed with? Oh, you're, uh, talking, about the, you're, talk, you're talking about the city council DC. hearing. Yes. She yes. Well, what, what, what we were referring to is that the Civilian Complaint Review Board was serving the department with charges, and they have to be vetted through several layers of the department before they give in to the cops. And normally they get 40 to 50 for a month, and it takes the department 120 days to vet these. And they received 800 cases, and they got them all back in less than 30 days. 86% that they agreed should go back to the cops and continue with those charges. And our argument is it's impossible to yeah. vet 800 cases less than 30 days, which is 100% true. Right. Exactly. And, and and people who hate cops should not be in charge. Look, we police the public. We don't hate the public. We're impartial. We're neutral. You get to a domestic violence uh, job, a domestic violence job, you have no beef one way or the other. Do you want to side with the husband? you want to side with the wife? You get there and you evaluate it you know, from a neutral position. If you're putting all these people in charge at the civilian complaint review board and they already hate cops, you know what they're going to find, but, but that's kind of what they want. Eric, they don't want active cops anymore. You know, you you know, we're right. At the time I was reading about the legislation and the the power and authority that CCRB was getting along with funding. But when I really saw it's scared me and kind of dawned on me. So I had a case in 2018 I was substantiated from the Civilian Complaint Review Board where I received charges. I actually took that to department trial, and it took almost four years to get to department trial. And I was served with, with the case beyond the statute of limitations, even with the COVID extension that was uh, ex- executive order by the governor. But, and I was found not guilty. But what I remember from the union, which was shocking, and, and, and it was a wake-up call, but by, by then it was just too late. The cases were mounting up for me. But I had went for an interview with the Civilian Complaint Review Board, and the investigator was asking me questions. I thought I was completely articulate, not trying to brag, but very knowledgeable. I mentioned case law and how it coincided with this arrest and why we had to use force and how violent this particular perpetrator was. But when when I was done with the interview, I'll never forget when the union had said to me, the vice president was there, he said, well, I'm sorry, but I think this one you're getting charges. And yet the investigation hadn't been done yet. He didn't speak to anyone from the Civilian Complaint Review Board there. The interview just ended. And I said, well, how do you know that? He said, ah, you know, uh, 
it looked like your knee might have been close to his head. You know, they're looking at this George Floyd thing. Meanwhile, this was 2018, the arrest. And the George Floyd was in 2020 during COVID. And it was a, it was a short wake-up call. And all my cases were getting bombarded on post-George Floyd. They were looked at with this different lens. And yet they all happened prior. And none of them were relevant anymore. It was just, it was just an abomination. It was a complete attack. It was overzealous. And I, I knew the cases were mounting up. And I, I became enemy number one. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, that's another thing that changed. When I was on the job, you bo- if you were a good cop, you, you had that, that reputation, right? A reputation. Um, I'll tell you, when I got out of BMOC, we had to meet with the XO of the of, first sergeant. We had to meet with, with the XO of uh, whatever borough you were going to. So I met with Chief Scagnelli because I was going to Lower Manhattan in the 7th Precinct. He came in. There were a bunch of new sergeants sitting there. And um, he said, you know what? You guys are, are – I'm glad that you studied. I'm glad you made sergeant. Some of you look kind of young. I hope you make lieutenant and you make captain and you move up. He says, but I'm going to tell you the two most important things that you need to realize on this job. Number one, 90% of the job is common sense. If you use common sense when you're doing police work, you're probably not going to get jammed up. The second thing is reputation. Your reputation will follow you not only outside your precinct, but through your ranks, and it will that will make news even in other boroughs when cops see you on a detail. And if, if you had a reputation of being an active cop, being a good cop, if, if somebody said your name, Jimmy Jones, and they said, yeah, that guy knows he's sharp, he's on point, right? The bosses, when I was on the job, would give you a lot of leeway. They, they would, because they, they didn't question you, because they knew this guy's got his shit together, and they backed you a lot more, and it got you. It got you out of jams a lot. Of, a lot of times, you know. Um, if if but but that's gone. They don't care how many people you lock up anymore. When they look at your case, Eric, they don't say, "Wow, this guy has all these complaints." Let's look at all of the arrests he's been involved in. Let's look at all of the collars, gun collars he's had, or whatever felonies that he's been involved in. Do they even compare them side by side? Yeah, he's got, you know, 100 complaints. But even as a boss, like like when, if you were the SOL, right, you're involved, you supervise hundreds of arrests. That's got to mean for something. It used to mean something when I was on the job. It, it doesn't appear, you know, they really don't want you. They, they want a, a quieter, a more gentler police department. And they really froze you by putting cameras on you and letting people stick the cell phone in your face, they stopped all proactive policing or intrusive policing. And it's a shame. It's a shame. Because oh, absolutely. It, you know, absolutely. It's, yeah, it, it's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, dude, it's a great point. Honestly, it's a great point that you made. That's exactly what, what you said is exactly the police department me and Eric stepped into. Do your job and you'll get taken care of. You'll go to the units. You know, I didn't know anybody either. My, my brother-in-law was a sergeant in the 7-9. He's like, oh, I could get you to bed style with me. I'm like, nah, I'm good. I'll take my chances. You know? <laughs> and, he, and he stayed there the whole time. He stayed there my whole career. You know, he retired out of there. He was there, I don't know, I think he did like 15. I think he stayed in the 7-9 15 years. He did like 26 on the job or whatever. But that was the police department we stepped into. Like, work 
the workers were taken care of. Right. You know, if right. you worked, you were taken care of. Did, did I have, you know, and by taking care of, oh, did I have my feet up? No. But like if I needed a day off, they would help me out. Not that I asked for it much. You know what I mean? But something, right. hey, I had my friend's wedding or something, you know. Um, and, and, and now it's the total opposite. The workers are frowned upon. You look at a guy like Eric, right? And they'll, and, and they'll compare him to every other cop on the street. You know, I talk to young kids now, three, four years on. They're like, I mean, how many cars you got? Nine. I'm like, what? <laughs> Adams, how, how many did the mayor have? Uh, yeah, he, had, he had about nine and, and, and you know. Get about nine in, in his police career too, but you know it was it was average cop was one a month like when I came out. Average cop, you were making one collar a month, and and like now and and you know and like you pointed out, Paul, I know the two eight was a lot different in ninety three, but I don't think New York City at any time we you could stick me, you, or Eric in a patrol car any day. We'll we'll see four or five collars. Are, are we gonna are we gonna take every single one? No, but if we're, we're answering that radio. There is no way we're avoiding a collar unless you're actively looking to avoid. Right. Exactly. And that and that's that's what's sad because you pick any profession. I don't care if you're working at Home Depot or you know you're you're working in a hospital or whatever. You want to reward those that work for you. And, and it seems like you've it's gone from you're a hard worker to you're a fucking problem. You're causing waves. We want everyone to get in line and go with the flow and you're the fucking problem. And, and, and that it's, you know, it's heartbreaking because we had, and I, and I'm, we, you know, we still have great cops. I mean, good cops with the sharp eye that could see a hand to hand or, 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 or like, let's fucking stop this guy. Now that might not be on the camera, right? Well, you just know, well, let me at least go over and talk to this guy. Well, let me see this guy's reaction when he makes eye contact with me. And I was telling you guys this on the phone about, you know, where I complain about what's happening to cops through multiple agencies, multiple cities, different states. It's, it's a shame. When I came on in 92, we had a cop. Uh, he was the broom, right, for, for the civilians. He was the guy that had, he had 40 years on. And all he did was sweep because he had 40 years on. He came on in uh, 1956 and he oh, overheard God. some of us saying that the job sucks. This is in the early 90s. And he said, don't be a cynic. People have been saying the job sucks forever. He said, when I came on in 1956, I had a guy train me who had 30 years on. We came on in 1926. And even back then he was saying, ah, kid, the job ain't what it used to be. <laughs> you know, in the <laughs> early 1900s, it was, it was much better than it is today. So I get that it's always changing. I get that we always think we have it harder than, than the next guy. But some of the stuff that I'm learning from your, from your podcast, cops have to do 25 years now. It, that's unheard of. It used to be 20. And when I came on, there was, it was a different tier. Guys that were hired in the 70s that were, you know, training us uh, or early 80s. Uh, and then we were, you know, 20 years and out and now it's 25. And they sacrificed the unborn so much that what you're left with is just a handful of cops that are competent enough to do the job. And probably half of them 
are afraid to get jammed up. And what does it do to morale? What does it do to the police? If you have all of these senior guys that know what they're doing, leaving the job, who's training the rookies? Who, you know, who, I love to teach. I love to train. I love to, you know, I, I enjoy that very much. And, but at least I was trained by people that knew what they were doing. And you weren't, you weren't really that afraid of getting jammed up. Our, our jammed up stories were this guy was Dewey, right? This guy's involved with domestic. He pulled his gun out on his wife. This guy, you know, crashed into a bodega while he was drunk. Like, like you can't help it. You fucked up, right? But now these guys are getting jammed, getting jammed up for not handing out business cards. I mean, come on, man. That's bullshit. What, what, I mean, that's why, Paul, I, I, I don't know if you're familiar yet, but I, I, I believe you watched the podcast. John and I talk about the disciplinary matrix, which was implemented in 2021. And it was certified by, by the predecessor, Jeremy Shea, who was supposed to be a cop's cop. And he sold out the job with this disciplinary matrix. And what's scary about this disciplinary matrix, back when you were on the job, the ideology of being jammed up was was getting in trouble, maybe getting modified where you, you, you have to sit on a desk and you're losing your firearm for a brief period, or you have to ride a different sector car, you're being transferred, or you're not working with your partner anymore. Those were the concerns. But now the concern that's on the table, which I think is one of the internal pressures that's leading to the problematic issue with mental health, is now termination is on the table. And yeah. it's so ambiguous, this document, we don't even know how much stuff you could actually be exposed to when it comes to termination. And there's these, there's these penalties, not only presumptive, which means it's automatic, but you have what's called the aggravating factor. So if you're a lieutenant, which you were a lieutenant, or you have time on the job, you can be terminated because that's considered an aggravating factor. And you know what aggravating factor is basically this? Well, you should have known better. Right. And I want to piggyback off some of the stuff you talk about. Let's talk about the Civilian Complaint Review Board. What I find most insulting, disrespectful, and just completely repulsive is that the title in itself is the Civilian Complaint Review Board. So when you actually look at the 50A and you look at my complaints, if you're not savvy with the police department, you're not pro-cop and understand intrusive police work, you would say, well, Eric, there must be a monster. Look at the civilians that are complaining about the interactions they're having. Exactly. But what they don't know is these are violent perpetrators that the complaints are coming from. People that will shoot you in the face just because you said something to them or they don't like you. That's where my complaints come from. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But they don't judge that. They will look at you or any other cop and say, let's look at his history of complaints. But when the guy comes in and makes one of those complaints, they don't look at him. They don't look at and say, you know what, this guy's been in and out of jail this whole time. He did a robbery. He did, you know, 10 years for manslaughter. He raped someone. Maybe he's a piece of shit. Maybe we should give the cop the benefit of the doubt. They don't think that. They're, it's designed to to scrutinize the police. And, and it's, it's just so unfortunate. CCRB did not have that much power when I was on the job. It was a headache. It was a pain in the ass to go down there. You had a lawyer. I went most of the time as a witness. Um, I think I got only one complaint, um, but but a lot of people didn't make them. You weren't giving out business cards. There was no hotline to CCRB, and and when I was on the desk, you know I, I learned with people, most victims or people who perceive themselves to be victims, just want a chance to be heard. 
They just want someone to listen to them. So if I was on the, de on the desk and someone came in and they said, I want to make a complaint, I, I would sit with guys. I'd sign off the desk. I'd go into another room and I'd sit with them for three and four hours and listen to them. And I'd get the guy a soda and we'd hang out and we'd bullshit. And by the time we were done, the guy gets up, shakes my hand. He says, you know what? Thank you for listening. I don't really want to make a complaint. I let them try to see why the cop may have done what they did and, and kind of talk them off the ledge, right? But now it's being pushed. Make a complaint, make a complaint, make a complaint. Ruin this cop's lives or this cop's career. And it's, it's, it's really unfortunate. But, you know, if we have bosses that at least have the discretion to say, listen, here's the form. You want to make a CCRB? I'll do it. No problem. But why don't you tell me what happened? And you sit and you talk to the guy and, and it might be legit. You know, if we have a cop that fucks up, but most of the time, you know, the cop may have been discourteous. Well, you know what? You told the cop to go fuck himself. I mean, he's not, it doesn't, the conversation is not going to end well when you start like that. And most of the time they, they just want to be heard and we need good bosses to, 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 entertain that but now you can't because you got the camera on you got signs all over the place and you're handing out business cards encouraging you to make a complaint and like you guys say the perps know this i'm going to put an obstacle in front of this cop for the rest of his career and i'm just going to keep lodging these complaints and and it will get him off of my back and it's sad that it's entertained today well i like to tell you this paul i'm not sure if you're aware but this is what I told the cops, especially the cops that worked for me in special ops before I retired. And I said, it is generation to generation. Even the same thing when I was in the Marines. The generation before me always says they're tougher than we were. The generation before them says they were tougher and they could deal with more. And we evolve and we and, and we and we assimilate as time goes on. But I think what changed now compared to before is not only pro protocol and policy change, law change. And that's why I think I don't think we could ever get back to where we were because laws have changed. And what's so interesting about this, I don't know if you know this, the handing out of business cards, that is not policy. That's law. It's called the Right to Know Act. And that's a law that's been administered by the New York City Council. So if a police officer or a lieutenant, any rank, does not hand someone a business card as requested, as per the policy, you violated New York City law. That is a problem. See, you know, you're, you're handcuffed and you're limited because the, the council is so powerful. Um, a lot of it, it's outside the police department's control. You could have the best boss in the world. If, if they're doing shit like this, then, you know, but, but it's filtering in a kinder, more gentle police officer who really is, a, you know, my, when I came on, my friend Al said, I bet you there's going to come a time where, where I don't know if they still call it intramortars, but I bet we're going to get, there's going to be an intramortar that says the cop can't put his hand on his gun. And I said, that's never going to happen. Come on. Oh, are we there yet? I mean, yeah, we are. I, I know I used to pull my gun out. I mean, if you were working that night, if you were active, the gun was always out. And I'm not talking you did anything wrong, but just for your safety. You're doing a vertical, you're doing a car stop, always down at my side. I didn't point it at anyone, right? But it was always out. And is that a complaint now? He pulled his gun out. Well, you know, I mean, 
it, it's unfortunately they're getting what they want. They don't want active cops. They, they clearly don't want to clean up the streets. They're not like you talked about how it's called the civilian complaint review board, right? Let's talk about names. Let's talk about criminal justice. What about victim justice, right? Like I said, there are victims and nobody seems to care about them. There's no funding for, you know, let's fund the rape crisis center. Or um, we, I don't know if you guys, if we still have crime prevention officers, but they used to come and change your locks if you were, if somebody broke into your house. L let's pursue that avenue. Let's get counseling for people who are really victimized, right? And, and you're talking about law handing out business cards, which is insane to me. I can't believe that you just said that, that it's actual law. But the, the other dunce, what's the other schmuck? Uh, not de Blasio, Cuomo. Not only did he raise the age from 16 to 18, which had terrible consequences, but he also put in place a system of laws that forced victims to allow the perp to revisit the crime scene. So now you are home and someone breaks in, God forbid, somebody attacks your daughter in a bed. I, I can only imagine what, what these poor victims must be going through, right? You're attacked in your own house. You got to let this fucking piece of shit back in your house to take pictures of the crime scene or you go to jail. It's insane. So you're getting it all on all ends, guys. You're getting it from the people outside the police department, CCRB, the city council, laws, the governor, the mayor. You know, I, I hate to say that things are things can't get, you know, this is the worst it's ever been. I will say that the iPhone and social media really set us back and the numbers don't lie. Crime is through the roof. And we, you know, I say it in almost every post, every tweet that I, I, I write, I say cops can clean up the streets if the cowards would that are in leadership positions would just let us. You could fix this. We know what to do. And, and, and there used to be a culture of, we used to say, well, all right, well, you stop the guy, but uh, I got the gun. Okay, so we're going to both go to court for that. Uh, well, you recover the money. Yeah, but I interviewed the victim. There was a culture of saying, let's formulate this. Let's get to court. Let's make sure this guy is put in jail. And now it's like, let, let's see how we can chicken this. Let's see how we can let, let this person out and not prosecute. And it, it's just, it's really, it's really sad. I've been removed for a while. You guys have, have a more recent taste of it and it's got to drive you insane. So it's, it's an anti-police pro-criminal anti-victim agenda. You know, you guys just made me think of something as you guys were talking and the way we coddle criminals the way we treat people that murder people, that shoot people, that rape people, that rob people, we don't treat the police the same way, right? The police don't have the due process. They don't have the protections. And, you know, and we keep saying like, oh, the record while you're on the job. And I'm going to say that what you do on this job today, today, like Eric Dim, when you pull up Eric Dim's name, for the rest of his life, 
There's no sealed CCRBs. There's no sealed anything. There's no sealed substantiated. For the rest of his life, whatever job he goes through, he you're gonna see. You know, I and again, I've said it before. He's the most complained about cop, but there are people coming up hot and heavy behind him that haven't heard that that haven't learned the lesson and are not learning through what Eric Dim showed. And I said it, I said it before. You're you're gonna see guys that if they go through a 25 year profession with the way that we're documenting and self reporting today, because that's another thing, Paul. Anytime you use force with anybody, you use force against anyone, you document it. That piece of paper. So is there a separate form? Because I think we used to, there was a checkbox. (laughs) No, there is a separate form. There's that cat again. (laughs) Threat injury, threat resistance injury report. It's called a trial report. So every time you fill that out, when you use force and you're required to, because if you don't, that's a failure to notify IAB. It's a failure to take a report, all that. That trial report goes to IAB. They generate their own internal allegations against you that usually gets off to the sensitive inspection uh, inspection unit um, dependent on the level of force you used. Right. And that's all dependent. And in a 100% goes to the CCRB. So you are generating your own disciplinary own force history and you will sit there and they will say this guy, Eric Dim, they don't care that Eric Dim's in the, in the anti-crime team. They don't care that Eric Dim had 50 collars or 60 collars this year and everyone else in the precinct had one, right? They don't care about that. They're going to say Eric's a tri-recidivist because in, in one month he had he did three tri-reports. So he's a tri-recidivist. So he's and, – and these are things that are going to stay with cops forever. So we have all this protection for criminals, but none of it for cops. But so, – but- I mean, there's no union. There's, there's like that's this is what I'm saying. This wouldn't happen in any other profession. It, it would not be allowed to just like everyone gets a bitch slap, gets the bitch slap. The NYPD. I mean, if you watch some of these videos where, where they're holding the phone, the iPhone, and this girl's going over, she's blowing smoke in this cop's face or shining a laser. No other profession has to put up with that. And there, I just I can't wrap my mind around how much it's changed, because we used to bitch, you know, we used to complain too, but but it was always the upper 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 management that we were worried about. Never the precinct level, never your CO, you know, you were never called into the ICO's office for doing work. Everyone went to bat for you if they knew you were a hard worker. So, and I've done that a lot for a lot of the cops that I work with. I can't tell you how many times I would say, don't give her the CD, give it to me. I'm her boss, give it to me. And that, that again, stems from, I want to be the guy that shows up on your doorstep when you call 911. I want to be in a leadership position. I want, get, I can't tell you, there are, I can't tell you how many times I stood when I had patrol I covered a foot post so the cop can go home if he or she had to go home. Don't worry about it. I got it. I'll special attention. I'm patrol supervisor. I could stay in the area. Just go. It felt good to help cops. You know, a lot of things, a lot of the issues isn't just the problem with the police and the higher ups like, you know, Adams and, and de Blasio, but it's the bosses, right? 
when when I first came on, you never saw the captain. The only time you'd see the captain was when he'd come out and get his check. That's it. <laughs> then, then they started with Comstat. Now, you know, now you see, you know, but but all of that stopped after George Floyd. Nobody seems to want to enforce the law anymore. And only certain people are being victimized by this. And, and it's, the, it's the group of people that claim it to care most about. And it's obviously not true. I'm glad you mentioned that. Because it's come to the point, it's unfortunate. You can't police anymore. You can't. I, I quickly found that out. Unfortunately, by the time that the charges had hit me, that they were, were substantiated from the Civilian Complaint Review Board, it was too late for me to actually stop doing police work because most of the charges stemmed from 2018 where the legislation changed. CCRB was getting more funding. They had subpoena power. And then I started getting hit with these charges in 2021, in 2000, late 2020. In 2022, because they had the statute limitations was exceeded. The statute limitations up, upon that, that was additive from the governor's executive order, was exceeded. And I was being charged with crimes for the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which is another caveat to the discipline matrix, which I totally don't agree with. So you couldn't do the job anymore. That's why I when I talked about this on early podcasts, policing came to the point that imagine you went to work and you were a construction worker and you had a tool belt. And they say, listen, for two months, we're going to build this house. You put that nail in the wall and you look at your tool belt and say, well, I can't use this hammer. I can't use a stable gun. I can't even use my hand. How do I do this job? So you try to avoid it. And that's what it's, it's come to a police work. You go to work and you have to figure out how not to do police work so that you don't get in trouble. And no one's going to defend you. The union even told me there's only so far they could go. There's only so much you could do. They're not a union. They're a benevolent association. The attorneys, right? You have a three to, you have a three to five minute window. When you go to a civilian complaint review board interview, you have a three to five minute window with that attorney, which a case that could ultimately change the trajectory of your career and even have you terminated because of the discipline matrix. And yet you get a three to five minute window about your particular case when the CCRB is. And John and I heard this. We heard this twice at a city council meeting. We heard it at a CCRB meeting that the civilian complaint review board is substantiating these cases without even correlating department policy. And once it gets to the NYPD and the patrol guide gives the police department the allotment to carry out the procedure or the protocol that they did, and then the, the charges would then be evaded, the CCRB is totally going against it. Because it's not about the totality of circumstances. It's not about the police officer. It's about how the civilian fe felt. And that's what we heard the Civilian Complaint Review Board yeah. also. It, yeah. yeah, it's unfortunate. That's what's happening. Sick, sick, because basically what you're saying is it's like you getting to a job and you interview only one of the parties involved, right? They don't want to hear from exactly. The you're looking at it only from the civilian's point of view. And uh, John, you asked what I would do if I were mayor. I would I would not have civilians in charge having this much power over over cops. It doesn't mean that you want corruption. It doesn't mean that, you know there's anything shady going on. It just means that you need to know how a, you need to know right from wrong, not just based on experience, but based on training. And a lot of things don't look good until you dive into the details and say, you know, police work is not meant to look pretty. Okay. In the movies on TV, Everybody gets collared, everybody's non-compliant, and you're able to shoot the gun out of the guy's hand. Just like Biden says, can't you shoot him in the leg, right? It, we all know it doesn't work like that. 
in real life. So if you're going to judge this cop and really affect his career in a negative way, and even his afterlife beyond the job, maybe getting another job in law enforcement, if you're going to have that power, you need to have a background as saying, I was in his shoes. This cop didn't have to act that way. Or I was in his shoes. And yeah, I would have done the same thing. If you don't have that experience or that training, you should have, you should have zero power over my life and, and the cops and, 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 you know, in my command. Well, that's the problem with the body worn cameras. So John and I did a podcast over the body worn cameras and the problem with the civilian complaint review board is they're a civilian entity. They don't have a police perspective. And when I talk about John says your head's on a swivel and the body camera might not catch it, which is a hundred percent true. But even if the body worn camera catches it, let's say we catch someone who's walking as all the behavioral indicators mimicking someone carrying a firearm of someone you've, you've arrested in the past, or it mimics the behaviors of a telltale signs of a drug transaction. You weren't new. So you know the, tell, the telltale signs of a hand-to-hand -hand, uh, hand -hand drug transaction. But if you're a civilian complaint review board investigator and you're looking at this body-worn camera... You don't see anything. You not... You, exactly. It may be <laughs> present on that camera, but they don't see it because they don't yeah. see what you see. Right? Yeah. And, and, and I can even correlate to, to this. So this is quite interesting. So I did that seven-hour deposition about the the riot, June 4, 2020, but that was in the South Bronx that I took part in, making an arrest. And during the deposition, I was shown a video by the attorney. And, of course, there's myself on the video, and she's asking me, what is going on in this video? And clearly, she was so one-dimensional, focused on what was going on with me, and she didn't see I pointed on the camera, or I said, I see someone there with a white, a white sweatshirt that has a hood, grabbing on the police officer's baton and tussling, trying to take it away. And she had to stop the video and play it again because they never saw that. See? So they don't see what police officers see. And that's what I talk about all the time. They don't know exactly what they're looking at. Until you have that trained eye, you can look at it all day, but you're not actually seeing what the police officer sees. Right. And and look at the power they have knowing that, right? That, that I mean, really, they, they, they've ruined your career. You know, and in the end, it's not just the cops that are suffering, really. I mean, I, I've never really been victimized. I've never been robbed. People, you know, in my family have. But really, I mean, think, and, and this is another thing, too. Like, when you talk about, we were talking about how we are the last line of defense, right? So the mayor, I forgot the schmuck, the one in uh, Minneapolis. Um, was it Minneapolis? Jacob Fry. The guy looks like, is it Jacob Fry? I forgot yeah, the guy. Young kid? Yeah. Yeah, the cops are standing outside, and they're watching them burn down the fucking precinct. And he got reelected. This this jerk off, right? What message does that send to the civilians? If you cannot stop these animals from burning your police car and taking over your precinct, what chance do I have? Because there's nothing after us. I mean, they say that, you know, when the cops need help, we call ESU. It's still it's still police, right? There's nothing after us other than vigilantes or full uh, uh, anarchy, right? So when the public is watching the police get assaulted and attacked the way they were and there's there's no pushback, that has a tremendous psychological effect on, like I said, the real victims, the people that now 
are afraid to go to work, the people that are afraid to go out of their house, the people that tell their kids, I don't want you outside. I don't want you to go so-and-so's house. I don't want you in the playground. It affects them. And, and you know, it doesn't have to be this way. It, but it all starts with leadership. I think what CCRB did to you, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond sad. And I feel your anger. And, and John, what, what happened with the vax and what they did to you is just, you know, but is this what they want? They wanted to get rid of two good guys. So it's like, it's like getting the police department through attrition, right? Yeah. We don't have to really go out and hire bad cops. We just have to let the good ones go. And let's find an excuse on how we could let that happen. You know, I, I, I had, I didn't, I want, I don't want to say I had higher hopes for Adams. The thing is, I just despise the Blasio so much. But what we were talking about before uh, about a reputation following you right? Through multiple commands, multiple ranks throughout your whole entire career. Eric Adams had a reputation of hating white cops. That was his reputation. I never met the guy. I never worked with him, but that was the reputation that you would hear from multiple people. So when I did the video on him, the, the short, where he actually says, when I was a sergeant, when I was a lieutenant, when I was a captain, I was all over their cracker, their cracker ass, and I gave them hell. And, and you know who I am. I'm exactly who I used to be. That was disgusting that you would use your rank as a sergeant, lieutenant, or captain and pick on certain officers just because they're white. And here he is admitting it. Nothing happened. He still got elected. So I, I would say that he's maybe a like a, a fraction better than de Blasio only because de Blasio was so bad. I, I can't say I'm shocked at what Eric Adams has done. I thought it would be a little bit more um, on hands, right? A little bit more, you know, crime would get a little bit better, but yep. given his history and his reputation, I can't say I'm totally surprised. I, I think he's worse than Adams. That's my personal opinion. I mean, I think Adams is – I think he surpassed de Blasio's eight years. Really? I really – I mean, I, I'm telling you, I think the NYPD is going to be in half in four years. At the, at the rate, it's unsustainable at the rate. And, like, you know, you said, oh, they didn't want two good guys like me and Eric. They don't want thousands of good guys. It's way bigger than me and Eric. We're just – we're just the ones that are going out and talking about it. You know, we have a little bit more time than the most of the guys. You know what I mean? A lot, and a lot of guys are timid and scared, even in retirement. Even what you're doing, they're scared to do it. Um, Paul, we yep. asked we we asked two questions to everybody on the podcast that comes on of retired guys. At the time you came on the police department, at the time, 1992, would you come? Would you come on the police department again in 1992? In 1992? Yes. Yes. Back then, it was great to be a cop. People loved police. You know, it was just uh, after 9-11, right after 9-11, the outpouring and the, the coming together, unfortunately, what we went through, uh, you know, that, that happened to, to make us realize, hey, let's all band together as Americans. Um, but people respected police. It was an honor to be a cop. I was proud to be a cop. Uh, I was the only one in my family, you know, and 
I would absolutely do it in a heartbeat in 1992. So the, my, the next question is <laughs> the other question that we ask is you're a young man. Now you're just about to hit 21. Would you come on the NYPD today? Absolutely not. Uh, there's no, and there's a reason they have this contract because all we're getting now is shit, right? So, and I have friends that are involved in the hiring process and you wouldn't believe the stories that they're telling me of who they're pushing through, right? So maybe because we're scraping the bottom of the barrel now, maybe we have to uh, give them a nice contract because there's nobody that wants to do this job anymore. You take any job and I put you under a microscope and you guys said this in the last podcast. The average person commits what? Five or six felonies a day, right? If I were to judge any other profession and put you on the, under a microscope and took eight or 10 hours of footage of your workday, who wants to deal with that? So I think they tried to give these guys a, a better contract because they know they're losing all the good guys and nobody wants to be a cop anymore. But right now, today, you, you could double that salary and I would not take it. And I think mainly because of the social uh, social media, the smartphone, and the woke politics just, I mean, we can go on and on and on about other things and, and how the country is just, you know, it's a war on tradition. And um, there are people that are in very high positions that want to change everything good about us. And, and unfortunately, they're succeeding, Right. You know, I love what, I love I love what you're saying because, and you're referring to me and John as the good guys, and, and you know what's it, it, it's ironic because, in the leftist eyes, and this abolished the movement of police, the anti-police rhetoric, they would say I'm the bad guy, they wouldn't say I'm the good guy, and you know we sat down with Jose LaSalle and we had a great conversation. Yeah, I watched. Who's the founder of Cop Watch? And he told us who he thought were the good police, who the good cops were. And that was the uh, that was the 12 that had the, the show uh, where they talked about quotas and, and what's going on in the police. And they talked about diversity and the, and the racism that they felt was going on in the department. And John and I, you know, we debated how we felt they weren't good cops. Those were the cops that were lazy and exhibited just, you know, not wanting to do police work. They exhibited qualities that were not characteristic and good traits of what we want of police officers to do on the ground being intrusive. It's not the kind of police what they were doing. I, I think most of these guys exhibited laziness and just had anti-police sentiment themselves and uh, kind of questionable why they actually joined the police department. And the perception is that we're not the good guys because we're going out there doing intrusive police work. And we've actually heard this when the papers when the papers initially started to write about my case and I referred to me and I was coined as the most complaint cop, they said that doing the intrusive police work, the proactive police work hurts communities. And that part, I still don't get to this day. So they don't see us as the good guys. And I, I really appreciate you saying we are the good guys. It's unfortunate. I think they think that the people that are the good guys now are the ones handing out ice cream or the ones that do the TikTok videos. Speaking of videos, I wanted to ask before you go, since you're, you do the videos and they tell a story, what is your take on the cops out there now that make these videos dancing in hallways in uniform? What is your take on that? I, I know my thoughts, and I can assume, John, but what is your thoughts on these videos in, in, that emerge? And, and if you've seen any of them or, or are you aware of these videos? Not. No, I have not. So I saw 
a couple where they're dancing in the street, like uh, at a detail. Is that what you mean, or or is this something? Yes, more? videos like that. We see cops in full uniform dancing in the in, in a hallway in housing while they're working, or they'll they'll do some kind of video decimating the uniform and it oh, kind of you know posting, who's posting the video, the cop or the public? No, the cops themselves. And they're not getting jammed up for that. No, no, they, they post videos of themselves dancing in uniform and, uh, you know, it's for likes and follows and they'll, um, they'll do funky things to their uniform and they'll dance in a hallway to, to different types of music. And, and the cop, I don't know if you saw it. No, I haven't seen it. Wait, so the cop uploads it himself? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, that's, it's a uh, phenomenon that's been going on through the department and I don't blame them. I think it's a mockery. I think it, we lose the respect to the uh, to the public. It, it's it's not professional. Yes, cops need to be humanized. I understand that, but it looks ridiculous. And I think that's that's where the public and definitely the the perps that are out there, these persons of interest, these violent perpetrators, see it as a joke, and it weakens the cops. It weakens the perception of, of the police force. Apparently, you haven't seen some of these videos, but you have wow. to see them. And the cops themselves upload it. And I don't particularly just blame them. I blame the leadership on the job because. It's become this contest. If you see, uh, if you have an opportunity to look at some of these Twitter pages of different commanding officers throughout the precincts of the city, it's a contest who has better Twitter pictures and they, they compete with each other to put up better photos on their Twitter page. It's not about, it's not about policing anymore, doing this intrusive police work. It's a, who has better photos and, you know, who's doing a, a, a better, uh, of picturing and, and, and painting their precinct better for a gay pride month or breast cancer awareness. And that's what the public considers as good cops. It's good gestures, but not good cops, in my opinion. Now that's, listen, after 9-11, we did, you know, we, we, there was a part of us that needed our sanity. And I was the young sergeant in lower Manhattan. And I got to tell you, me and my friends, um, we had fun. We, we, I tried to lighten it up. I made them laugh. We played practical jokes on each other. Of course. I would be embarrassed if someone took a video and, you know, he, he walks by the RMP and you key the siren and the cop, you know, jumps and we all laugh or, you know, <laughs> like, but if these cops are actually doing it themselves and uploading it, I was worried about being in uniform and I'm retired for, you know, 15 years. And I was worried, thinking, you know, am I going to get in trouble? And, and it turns out that it, there's nothing wrong with it. But these guys are twerking and stuff in uniform. That's yes. disgusting. That's disgusting. Because even though I had a – our circumstances were different and, you know, the, the cops had such emotional trauma and, and I tried to alleviate that as much as we could, um, I still wouldn't want that getting out because it, it would look, you know, unprofessional. And um, – if they're intentional, I could see if the public catches you on your cell phone. Like you guys uh, uh, informed us that there's now a sticker where you have to, there's a sticker on the cell phone. You got to be fucking kidding me. on the job now. We got to have the sticker on the back of your phone. You need the NYPD sticker. It's the most important thing in policing right now. They don't care, man. They, they, you know, it's, I try to figure out why. You know, how can you claim to care about people when you're uh, when you refuse to let your cops do their job? 
I haven't I haven't figured it out. The only thing that I listened to a guy, he had a, a radio show for many years, and now he has a podcast, Michael Savage. And he wrote a book in 2006 called Liberalism is a Mental Disorder. And that's the only thing I can come up with. It's just something, you know, the way they think, where if you if you draw it out to a logical conclusion and you say, you know what, if you arrest less people, you're probably going to have more crime. They don't make that connection, and, and it's all about social justice warriors, and I can't figure it out. But uniform, doing stuff like that, no, I, I, I think that's terrible. That's terrible. They already don't respect us, right? Listen, I, I agree with you. There's a time cops need to vent. They need to have fun with each other, joke around. I mean, there's videos that have been captured of myself. One where Cop Watch had put it out. We had apprehended a violent perpetrator in possession of a legal firearm. He was on a motorcycle. The battery died. And I actually pushed it back two miles to the precinct on it with my feet. So the cops were laughing. We were laughing hysterical. And somehow, I don't know how, it got to cop watch. And then they put it out there. But we didn't put it out ourselves. But they're making these videos where they put it out. I mean, it was funny, right? We were, we were, we were laughing. At me. <laughs> I mean, they were laughing. At me. It was hysterical. But, I mean, cop watch had put out a lie that we arrested someone uh, – a young kid that didn't have his license. We actually got someone a legal firearm. But yes, that's when cops need to vent. But actually, purposely dancing in a housing, uh, a housing location or housing building to get likes and to put on Twitter to no, show the cop that you're human, I think is unnecessary. No, if you will add, yeah, I feel like right. you should be getting jammed up for shit like that. You, you, you can't. It, be it should happen organically. Stuff. Something, fu something funny happens, and the cops are enjoying this. We need that part. You need to vent. And, right. and that's the problem with the body-worn cameras. There's no time to vent anymore. You can't have a normal conversation. Yeah. You sit there with the camera and you're like, I don't know, is that recording it? Did right. someone hit that? Did, did we catch that? It's, it's right. not normal anymore. And not just what you see, but the conversations we would have. We would break each other's balls all fucking day long. I don't want Good. people listening to the stuff that I'm saying. It, it prevent when, when uh, I forgot what which rank when I was in BMOC, somebody complained, you know, of course we've always been complaining. One guy says the problem with this job is the job wants us to be a wooden soldier. And when he asked him to expand on it, he says, we, we stand still, you can't move. You got to take all the shit that they throw at you, but you can't respond. So not only are they passing laws now that prevent you from doing police work, but literally they're, they're like dehumanizing you. Where you're afraid to have a conversation with your with your friends about stuff that you would normally say, it changes the whole dynamic. Now, I do think that there's a place for body cameras, and it could help you. But if you're rely, you know, a shooting or why I stop, but it's a double-edged sword because you say, "Well, check the cam, check check the footage," and what you thought was on there isn't on there because it's blocked by your hand or. You're, you're, you're touting the footage saying, I'm going to be exonerated. Check it, check it, check it. Or the mic doesn't pick up what you know you heard. They now say, you're lying. And we can prove it. And take that whole investigation in, in a different direction. So I, I, I'm mixed about it with, with the body cam footage. Overall, I would say it's, it's, it probably does more harm than good. Because like you guys say, you have no problem stopping this guy because he looks... Like he's up to no good, no good. But um, the camera may not have picked it up, so I'm gonna wait until I can get him 
doing that suspicious behavior a second time and it might not happen. And now that guy doesn't get stopped because you're afraid of getting jammed up and he goes out and he commits another crime or, or, you know, it's, it's, but again, it doesn't happen in any other profession. Let's put a cam, a, a, a camera on Biden. Let's listen to every conversation he has. I mean, let's put it on Hakeem Jeffries. Let's put it on Chuck Schumer. My boy, oh, I got a lot of videos about him, right? <laughs> if we're going it, to, it's, it's, there's something about police work. You know, I was talking to my friend, we were talking about construction. Eric, I know you, you talked about liking plumbing and stuff. And John, you said you were working on a house a few days ago. There's something about the construction industry. For some reason, it, it absorbs or people that are scammers seem to gravitate towards it. Most people don't say, they can't pretend to be a doctor or pretend to, you know, whatever. But they, a lot of people who don't know what they're doing and are con men seem to go into the construction field, right? And it's for some reason that attracts people like that. And with police work, it's like you are, you are attracting not just people that don't like you, but when you put the camera footage on the news and everyone can analyze it that aren't in law enforcement, you're all of these people who may not have even had an opinion about police work. It attracts them all in to say, Oh, that wasn't right. This was wrong. Why did the cop do this? And they'll pull up some section of the patrol guide and, and, and scrutinize, you know, your behavior. They put you under a microscope. Nobody can work. Uh, uh, under a microscope. I don't care what your profession is. And they're not getting paid enough. And it's, it's, it's not worth it. That's my long answer. I absolutely would not take the job today. And you guys wouldn't either, would you? <laughs> no. right, so so we're, all on, we're all on the same page. Absolutely not. So, Paul, listen, we're, we're, thank you for joining us. I mean, we're almost at two hours now. Sorry. Um, no, 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 let's apologize. No, I don't apologize. I mean, we, we go long. Sometimes we go two hours, you know, it, uh, you know, you, you had a lot to offer. We hope you come back on. Uh, we do leave everybody with the last words. So if you could offer the public, the young guys, anybody you want, your kids, whatever you want to do, the floor is yours if you can end us off. Well, again, I'd like to thank you for this opportunity. When you retire, a lot of people bury it and they say, you know, I had a, I had not necessarily a bad career, but I left on the bad terms and I just want to forget about it. A lot of cops come home and they don't talk to their wives or their husbands because they had such a bad day at work and they don't, and some of the shit they won't even believe. Right. My friend was telling me, he said, yeah, I went home to talk to my wife and she asked me what happened? Why are you so upset? And he said, Paul, I couldn't even tell her. I said, well, what was it? She said the perp took her teeth out and tried to chase him with her, her dentures, her teeth, right? Tried to bite him. So he says, I can't, I can't tell that, you know, to my wife. Like, she, number one, she's going to think I'm full of shit, right? And it's a lot of times you just say, ah, oh, forget it, right? Um, to the cops that are coming on the job now, you know, I understand you want to help. I think it's great. Um that's why I became a cop to help people. 
I would, I would ask you to reconsider because it's probably not what you thought it's going to be. Um, and then when you have the amount of time invested that you guys have and you come back and you continue to be a voice for those people that are still, you know, that you kind of left, right. That are still there and people that are coming on the job now. Um, I, I think it's, you guys need to be commended for it because you really are a voice in the wilderness, right? I want to thank you for it. Please keep doing it. If you, if you insist on becoming a cop, I'll talk you out. I'll try to talk you out of it. But for those that, are, that really want to become, you know, come on the job, study, I'll leave you with a good story, a, a real quick story. I work with a cop in the 2-8. We work midnights. His name is John Muller. He went through the academy. We went to field training, and we ended up on midnights. He had just taken the Yonkers PD test and got called for Yonkers. And he said, Paul, I don't know what to do. You know, I, I don't want to have to go through another academy. Maybe I could lateral. But the bad thing about Yonkers PD, he was telling me, is there's no room for advancement. There's only 500 cops. If I stay on the NYPD, I can become a sergeant. I can study for lieutenant. I can make my way up. I don't know if I want to be in a small pond like that. The ICO was a total dick. He berated him. He told him, just make a fucking decision. Be a man. John decides, I'm going to leave. And he goes to join Yonkers PD. Now, remember, he was afraid that he couldn't move up in that small police department. There's not as many as promotional exams, right? You know the deal. Um, in lower Manhattan, I think it was in the 7th, and two Yonkers cops come in, and I'm on the desk. And I said, hey, I know it's a small department. I said, do you guys happen to know John Muller? And they said, oh, you mean Lieutenant Muller? And I said, holy shit. He was worried that he wouldn't become sergeant. Here he is, a lieutenant. Good. That, that, it was like great news because he's a really good guy. Fast forward to last year. I'm listening to Glenn Beck, and I hear him say, we are now joined by the Yonkers Police Commissioner, John Muller, the guy made commissioner. So my advice to you and my parting words are, if you really want to become a cop, Study hard. The patrol guide isn't everything. Just keep common sense will get you out of a lot of things. Don't be afraid to ask for help. A lot of the senior guys will give it. And for the guys that are on the job and they're stressing, mental health is a big issue. Speak to someone. Be safe. Guys, please keep doing what you're doing. I watch every single podcast. I love what you do. Thank you for this opportunity. And I hope to see you again. And thank you for sharing my videos too. It means it gives me a voice. It's really therapy, right? Where I still feel like I'm helping cops by lending my voice to them and trying to show some of the hypocrisy because um, I know if we said it, we've said it for generations, but it really is a thankless and, and tough job. And, and, and the ones that are good that still stay, they need to be commended and, and celebrated for what they do. Absolutely. Paul, can you just tell us where to find you again one more time? So if you type in my name on YouTube, Paul Manicom, it, it should come up. The name of my channel is Just Right with an exclamation point, an exclamation mark at the end. But for some reason, YouTube gave out handles. 
So if you want to go directly to the Just Right channel, it's Just Right 911. One, one word, Just Right 911. And that takes you directly to the YouTube channel. On Twitter, I'm Paul Manicone at uh, Just Right PD. And, uh, and I got that name from my daughter, honestly. I said, you know, my, she was a teen at the time. And I said, you know, I'm not the far right. Certainly not left. I don't want people to think I'm crazy. What would you name it? And she said, how about just right, dad? How about, you know, just not extreme, just right. So I said, okay. So that's how I got the name of the channel. And, um, and I appreciate you guys supporting the channel also. Uh, hey, Paul, it's been a pleasure. Outstanding. You are nothing but congenial. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And you're always so supportive. I appreciate it on Twitter. You're always, uh, you know, commemorating things that John and I do. And I really appreciate the support. It just gives us more motivation to uh, to help yes. the cops. We plan on being a catalyst for change. And uh, people like you help us. And, and I appreciate you supporting us. And we support you also. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, bro. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. No, thank both of you guys. And, uh, you know, the fight continues tomorrow. We'll get right back out there. We'll keep smashing back at everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. The great and powerful Paul Manicone, New York's finest, retired and unfiltered podcast. We'll be right back at you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.